This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, with Congress soon to be returning from its August recess, Indivisible is calling for a week of action on immigration to pressure lawmakers to advocate for cuts to ICE and CPB as part of the 2020 budget. We are joined by Indivisible's National Policy Director, Angel Padilla, and by Indivisible's Legislative Director, Mary Small, who says that the timing of pressuring members of Congress during their first week back is critical. How much money they have is essentially what controls the amount of harm that they're able to do. Uh, And so this is the window to influence that decision about how much money they will receive. Then how we as activists can deal with the trauma of the Trump administration. We address your questions with Jennifer Young. She is a counselor who specializes in trauma and PTSD therapy and who also happens to be a leader with her local indivisible group. And finally, Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors is an immigrant rights nonprofit that provides legal advice and accompaniment services to immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers in central and eastern Washington. We talk with the organization's founder and executive director, Abigail Scholar. That's all coming up, so stay with us. As Congress gets ready to head back into session in September, progressive activists have the opportunity to make their voices heard in a very impactful way on the subject of immigration. Indivisible is an official partner of the Defund Hate Coalition, a group of immigration advocacy and civil rights groups that are calling for a week of action from September 9th through the 13th to pressure members of Congress to, among other things, substantially draw down the budget for ICE and CBP. To learn more about this, we are joined by our friend Angel Padilla. He is National Policy Director for Indivisible. Hello, Angel. Hey, how you doing? Good. And we are also joined by Mary Small. She is Indivisible's Legislative Director. Welcome, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, it goes without saying that there is just so much to resist with the Trump administration. So, Angel, why has Indivisible chosen to focus on immigration as a key legislative issue? Yeah, that's a great question. So this has been one of our priority issues from day one. Um, and I think there are three main reasons why we why we've been focusing on this. The first one is just that this is a um, we have a moral obligation to prioritize immigration. Um, what we saw from day one under Trump was an attack on immigrant families and communities, uh, not just you know the stuff that we saw at the border last year with family separation, but the fact that families are being separated across the country every single day. This is you know the ice raids that we've seen. Uh, this is things like the Muslim ban. This is like the enforcement priorities that we've seen where everyone in this country is basically a target, uh, every immigrant is, is a target under Trump. And so there was a moral obligation to prioritize this issue. Uh, on top of that, there's a, a sort of political need to work on this issue. Trump made his 2016 campaign all about immigration. He tried to make 2018 all about immigration. And what we're seeing now is uh, an even more aggressive approach here. He thinks that immigration is going to be what takes him, what gives him another term. Right. Uh, anti-immigrant approach he thinks is his ticket to a second term. So we have to respond. If we don't respond, then we are in a weaker position going into 2020. Uh, And then there's a a third uh, category here, which is democracy. Uh, What we have seen is Trump eroding democratic institutions across the board. uh, And this is one way that he's actually doing this. And this is, you know, the agencies that are responsible for immigration enforcement um, are the ones that are every day undermining democratic norms, democratic institutions, things like violating the Constitution in the way that they uh, spend money, uh, civil rights that they abuse. Those are all reasons why it must be an issue that not only that we work on, but that we hope 
broader progressive community also works on. Well, you know, uh, Mary Angel's kind of touching on this uh, already, but why do you feel it's important to pressure our lawmakers about this now, especially during the first week of September? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's a couple a couple of answers to that. The first is that the fiscal year uh, ends at the end of September. And so in the month of September, lawmakers are going to have to make decisions about how to fund the government um, for the next fiscal year. Uh, and so decisions about how much money to give um, ICE and Customs and Border Protection, the two agencies most responsible um, for carrying out Trump's anti-immigrant agenda, how much money they have is essentially what controls the amount of harm that they're able to do. Uh, and so this is the window to influence that decision about how much money they will receive. Um, but the other sort of bigger picture uh, response is that lawmakers are sort of deciding how they want to set up the terms um, of uh, of their posture towards the president and his fear mongering over the course of the next year. Uh, and so we want to make sure that folks are coming from a strong position, that they're standing clearly in their values. Uh, because if we start making, you know, bad deals and harmful concessions now, it will. We know that that will only continue to spiral um, from now through the rest of the year. And so we want to. We definitely want to start from a place of strength and a place of clarity about our values. And you've also said that, you know, for our representatives, neutrality on immigration really isn't an option, right? Yeah, that's right. I think that goes back to the point that that Angel was making, which is this is the issue that Trump thinks he wins on. Um, and so there is no sitting on the fence. Uh, Trump is doing everything that he can to drag our country uh, far to the right towards white nationalism and xenophobia. And so this is not a moment for, for lawmakers to sort of be trying to make some kind of deal in the middle. It's a moment for moral clarity. Um, and because of the way uh, that Trump is engaging on this, there isn't space for um, for neutrality. You sort of have to have to pick which side you're going to be on. And the funding fight is going to be the next moment for for that clarity. And I think um, that is, you know, another reason that we are really excited about the this week of action that's coming up in just a few weeks. Yeah, likewise. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, let's just give people a little bit of background. So in June, a majority of House Democrats voted for what was called a supplemental spending bill that ultimately wound up giving Trump $4.5 billion in virtually unregulated money for ICE and CBP. Angel, can you just tell us briefly what happened there? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, an unfortunate outcome there. Um, basically, what we saw, and I hate to sort of put it so uh, crudely, but it, I think it was what we saw were a bunch of Democrats who uh, sacrificed their their own values in order to get a bill passed that did not have any of the things that, that we needed. Um, they were facing a lot of pressure. One of them, by the way, is this is right before a recess, and so a lot of these members just wanted to get out of town, which is something you see a lot here in D.C. Mm. Um, but, but like there was uh, what we were seeing, what we continue to see is a bunch of headlines from things that are happening at the border. And so there is a common response from Democrats and even some progressives to throw money at the problem, even, even though they know that what Trump will do with every one of those dollars that he gets is add and maximize cruelty to the families, uh, the immigrant families, including those at the border. And so what we saw was basically a revolt from from moderate Democrats led by the Problem Solvers Caucus. Um, and they basically muscled this, uh, the Senate bill, they forced uh, Democratic leadership to take the Senate um, supplemental through, which again, did not provide any of the protections that, that we need, uh, and also gave money to those same agencies that are doing a lot of that harm. So what we saw was again, it was it was moderates in the in the House um, pushed through a bill, um, and again, it, what we saw it was it was 
it was uh, condemned by most of our immigration partners, including the Defund Hate Coalition. Um, but it just kind of highlights this need that like we need to have progressive voices and progressive champions in the House, especially fighting back, because otherwise we're going to see this play out again and again. Absolutely. And you mentioned the Problem Solvers uh, Caucus, and that is a group of moderate Democrats, a couple of whom actually are here in Washington state. So we have a chance to make this right with the 2020 federal budget, and that needs to pass by September 30th. And this will be through something called appropriations. Briefly, Mary, can you just explain how the appropriations process works? Yeah, absolutely. So you can think of it this way. The the budget process, which folks have probably seen some headlines about a budget deal, basically determines how big the pie of federal spending is. And then the appropriations process, which is what is, you know, really happening and moving right now, is how we slice up the pie. Um, and so what is what is happening uh, is that these different subcommittees in Congress get to pick how their pie gets sliced up. And so one of the subcommittees is the Homeland Security Subcommittee. And so they're the folks who decide how much money we give to FEMA, for example, for disaster relief versus ICE or CBP. Um, and so what is happening right now is that there is a House version of the bill. The Senate hasn't done theirs yet. The House version hasn't passed the floor. And so everything is in flux. There's so much opportunity um, for influence um, and for folks to be weighing in with their members of Congress. And just two other quick things I'll notice, I'll, I'll, I'll note. One, as you said, uh, ICE and CBP did get a lot of money in the supplemental um, that you were just talking about. And then what did we see? We saw ICE turn around and conduct one of the biggest worksite raids in history right. with that money that that they were saying that they needed for a different purpose, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, that should be a really clear sign to members of Congress how this money is going to be used. The other thing that has gotten less attention um, is that ICE has notified Congress that they are planning to, just like they did last year, raid other government accounts to plus up um, their detention account in, in this fiscal year. And so there's no excuse for lawmakers to be going into these appropriations negotiations um, from a place of, of believing what ICE is saying about what they need from believing the Trump administration um, and being kind of hoodwinked, hoodwinked again. Yeah. And so we see what the, the stakes are here going into this. And you mentioned that you know, things are kind of in flux right now. The House version is not nailed down. What would we like to see in the come out of the Appropriations Committee uh, for DHS as regards to ICE and CPB? What are we going to uh, be pushing for there? Yeah, there's two big buckets of asks. So the first is around just cutting the baseline funding for both of those agencies, again, ICE and CBP, who are the main agencies um, carrying out Trump's anti-immigrant agenda. Just literally a significant decrease in their overall funding. As, as we always say, funding is policy in action. So if you take the funding away, it really constrains their ability. But the second bucket is around guardrails there and accountability. There's all of these um, sort of, I mean, shenanigans for lack of a better word, um, that, that ICE and CBP are using to pull money in from other places. Uh, but the reality is that the Constitution gives Congress, not the executive branch, the power of the purse. And so it is within Congress's power to take away these authorities, these loopholes that they're using to pull in additional money. And that's absolutely imperative 
uh, to sort of both restore the proper constitutional role for Congress, but also, as, as Angel was saying before, this ties back to sort of democratic uh, processes, like a really important part of that. So again, it's cutting the baseline funding for CBP and ICE, and then making sure that there are um, good guardrails in, case, in place to prevent them from grabbing money from other places. Okay. And also, it's my understanding that we're going to be pushing for no extra money for Trump's border wall, too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's part of the funding for Customs and Border Protection. That is the entity um, that would be receiving that money. And so part of part of cutting their funding uh, gets at the border wall, but it also gets at things like Border Patrol, which is one of the, the entities um, that has, an, you know, an incredibly long track record of abuse and cruelty. Um, it's also the entity that folks will remember there were secret Facebook pages that came to light relatively recently. Right. They really just highlight the like entirely corrupt culture inside of that agency. So, you know, you've both talked about the harm and cruelty uh, from both of these agencies. And we certainly have seen that adding money to the budget has done nothing to improve conditions for detainees. Angel, are we at all concerned that cutting the budget will come to harm for detainees? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think folks need to really understand that 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 is a false choice that both Republicans and some Democrats like to present to people that if we don't give these agencies more money, then people are going to be worse off. But what we have seen, you know, for the last two and a half years is that every time you give Donald Trump more money, he uses it for the same purpose, which is to harm more people, harm more families, more children. And so it's a false choice. It is not about the lack of money. We have continued to increase funding for these agencies uh, and, and in some cases exploded, like the, the amount, and Mary, you know this better than I do, but the, the detention numbers have more than, you know, increased by more than 50% since Donald Trump took off. So it's not about, it's not about like a lack of money. It's about the choices that they are making, which are, um, de, you know, designed to increase harm and cruelty. And so adding more money just gives them more money to do that. So we want Democrats to support these stipulations that you mentioned within the appropriations bill. But if the appropriations bill doesn't pass, there will be what is called a continuing resolution. That is basically a stopgap that pushes the budget fight to a later date. What are we asking our lawmakers to do if there is a continuing resolution? Mary? Uh, great question, because this is a pretty likely scenario. Uh, so basically, we're just asking if, if an, a continuing resolution is supposed to just maintain the status quo, right? Like that's what it's supposed to do. There are two big risks if we are under a CR. The first is that ICE will ask for a special extra pot of money on a CR, uh, which should just be flatly rejected by Congress. No question. It's called an anomaly. Congress should absolutely say no. There's no justification for that. The, the second thing is that over the last several years, ICE has gotten into this habit of overspending during a CR. Then they come into the final uh, negotiations about a final spending bill at a deficit and blackmail Congress into bailing them out. That pattern absolutely has to stop. And so um, the simple way to say it is no more money for ICE uh, or CBP. Uh, if it's a if it's a CR that's supposed to preserve the status quo, it should literally do that uh, for the for your listeners who might be more policy wonks. Um, the kind of detailed version is to reject an anomaly or reject a request for extra money um, and to prohibit overspending during the course of a CR. Yeah. And this gets into the question of leverage and how much leverage the Democrats ultimately have going into this process. And this brings up kind of a tough question because when CRs don't pass, the government can shut down. Angel, do we want our lawmakers here to hold the line on these provisions, even if it means a shutdown? 
So what is important to keep in mind is, you know, you mentioned this, which is we have a split Congress, which means there's a Senate that is controlled by Republicans and there is a House that's controlled by Democrats. And there is a, uh, you know, Donald Trump in the White House who has taken us to the brink over and over and over and over again. And so it is it is unfair and uh, and probably un and untrue to say that if we get a shutdown, it's for because of, you know, the things that we're asking for here. What we are what we want is that. We want members of Congress and Democrats to, especially given that they now have uh, new powers and authority in the House, we want them to stand by their values. Um, what we have seen is that they have, have uh, over, over the course of the year, is that they have sacrificed on those values, and that has come at the expense of families and communities. What we want them to do is to draw a line. I mean, this is this is about you know families that are being harmed. This is also about our, our you know what do we stand for as a progressive community and as a, as a country. Um, we want them to push for the things that we need to get done, including cuts uh, to C uh, DHS. Um, and then, uh, again, this is also uh, this is something that both Republicans in the Senate and the White House need to be a part of. And so um, if the answer is, if the question is, do we want them to, to hold the line? We absolutely do. Um, and, and we think that it is not, uh, you know, it will not be, they should not worry about being blamed for a shutdown. We've already seen it. Uh, play out earlier this year, it was clear that it was Donald Trump that was that took us there, and he will take us again uh, to that point if we don't get uh, a deal this, this September. Okay. Well, we are now officially past all the rather complicated policy stuff. So uh, deep breath. Let's uh, let's shift over and talk about the action that we can take around this, because I think this is exciting. So while the August recess is still on, uh, I know that you're encouraging members to go to town halls, schedule office meetings with the reps about this. And then there's going to be, as I said, a full week of action from September 9th through the 13th. Uh, Mary, I will ask you, why a full week of action instead of just a single day? It's a great question. Uh, I think part of it is because this is this is a big moment, right? This is as we were talking about before, like this is the moment where lawmakers are really settling into the posture that they're going to take headed into next year. We want that posture to be a place of strength, a place of groundedness and what their constituents are calling for. And so a full week of action gives the opportunity for constituents to really express uh, the kind of the, the the fullness of what they're bringing to their members of Congress. Um, we also have more plans than we could fit into a single day. And so we're really excited to be able to spread that out over the course of a week. OK, so then, Angel, what are we asking groups and members to do during the week of action? Yeah, so what we, we need is to see as many constituents calling uh, their members of Congress who want them to do office visits. Um, we want them to hear, we want members of Congress to hear directly from their constituents throughout that week about how they want uh, to see, uh, you know, them stand by their values, you know, and and make sure that we get don't get any more money for DHS, for ICE and CBP, and that we add those super important guardrails that Mary was talking about earlier. Um, so that's what we want them to do the starting September 9th and then culminating in a larger day of action on September 13th. So all but two of Washington's members of Congress voted for the supplemental bill in June. That was the one that gave Trump $4.5 billion. And uh, this is, it's going to be something of a heavy lift. And so I'm wondering for our listeners, Mary, if you can talk a little bit about how we demonstrate to these representatives that the appropriations provisions are not only the right thing to do, but are the right thing to do for their district. Yeah, I love that question. I mean, I think there's a few different pieces to this. Uh, we were obviously really disappointed um, by how many Democrats voted for the the supplemental. Um, I think the the good news is that there's been fresh evidence since that vote of why these agencies do not deserve any additional money and, in fact, deserve cuts in funding. It's the it's the um, 
workplace raids that have happened since then. It's the kind of deepening cruelty of what is happening at the border. It's the Trump administration's announcements about a racialized wealth test um, for legal immigration. All of these pieces packaged together um, that we hope uh, will be will be helpful to members of Congress in making the right decision this time. Um, I also think that folks are better prepared to answer to answer questions. Um, about the treatment of people who are, you know, adults as well as children who are being detained um, and better better able to stand in a value that both says people always deserve to be treated humanely and with respect and giving more money to these agencies, as Angel said, is a false choice. Um, these folks should not be locked up in the yeah. first place. Um, and I'm glad that constituents are going to have the chance to be able to raise that. But the other thing that I'll add, which takes us, zooms us out into an even bigger picture, is that, you know, you hear people say budgets are moral documents, and it's kind of a cliche, but it's so true. And so in the appropriations process, we're making, in some ways, um, smaller decisions about how to slice up the pie, as I said. But constituents have to remind their representatives that we're also making big picture decisions. Every dollar that's going to CBP or to ICE is a dollar that should be going to um, healthcare or housing or green infrastructure, right? All of these things that actually help whole communities thrive together. Uh, and so I think that whether you're talking about the harms that are caused by these agencies or the benefits to communities that could be uh, amplified if these dollars were spent uh, in different ways, both of those are reasons why this is the right decision for constituents, for communities, and for these representatives to make in September. Yeah, I love what you say. Uh, budgets are moral documents. And you know, money being spent by our government really does make a statement about who we are and who we want to be. Uh, as a country. Um, as I mentioned, we especially want to put uh, pressure on members of Congress who voted in favor of the Supplemental Immigration Spending Bill. And so I will have a link for listeners at IndivisiblePodcast.org so you can find out how your member of Congress voted on that. So, Angel, just in closing, where can people go to learn more about the Week of Action? Yeah, so we, uh, Indivisible.org uh, uh, forward slash defund8 is, uh, we'll have all the information that folks need uh, about you know what we're doing, what the asks are, and then also uh, we'll have the distributed events on our map so people can see if there's anything locally that they can go to. Excellent. And I will also have that information for listeners at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Angel Padilla is National Policy Director for Indivisible, and Mary Small is Indivisible's Legislative Director. Thank you so much to you both. Yeah, thanks for having Thanks for having us. For most of us in the progressive community, the last two and a half years have taken a toll. In addition to the physical and emotional rigors of the activist work we do, the almost daily onslaught of outrages coming from the GOP and the Trump administration have been, in a word, traumatizing. To talk about how to address this, we've invited on Jennifer Young. She is a counselor who specializes in treating trauma and PTSD, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. So Jennifer Young, it is great to have you here. Uh, both as a counselor and as a, a fellow leader. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Stefan, so much. I'm so glad to be here tonight and hopefully share what I know and just glad to be a part of doing this as an activist and um, contributing where I can. Well, look, I have to tell you, when I let people know that a trauma specialist was going to be on the show, my social media and inbox just kind of blew up. Uh, <laughs> so we have a ton of listener questions for you. Um, but I, I want to start by discussing a few things that you laid out at a talk that you gave at Indivisible's Gathering of National Leaders in D.C. Um, first, you introduced people to the idea of cognitive dissonance. So for people who are not familiar, what is cognitive dissonance and how does it pertain to the trauma of our current political situation? 
Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is holding two opposite thoughts that you can't make sense of that causes you emotional pain. And frankly, it's a pretty common experience for all of us to have some cognitive dissonance throughout the day on a very minor, minor scale. I, I use the example of trying to decide where you want to go to dinner and uh, should I go to Chili's or Applebee's, Chili's or Applebee's, and you kind of go back and forth and it's kind of a pain in the butt to get there. And then you finally make the decision and you have a little bit of relief. Um, but cognitive, cognitive dissonance is also the source of psychological trauma when you have to hold a thought or two thoughts that you can't make sense of over a long period of time, it, it can create a trauma reaction in your brain in addition to the layers of cognitive dissonance that we may experience. Cognitive dissonance about um, what another person may represent to us. Cognitive dissonance about what we believe about ourselves. All of those layers can create a traumatic reaction. What, How it relates to what we're going through now is that we are literally being exposed to two opposite things every day whether it's our president is a liar or our neighbors are being taken away and, and kept in detention centers or whether it's something closer to home, even closer to home that I can't, you know, my family doesn't believe the same things I believe. I've uncovered that our morals are so different. So the, all of those layers um, have created trauma in almost everyone, certainly in activists as, as I know it. Well, you say that one of the things that people can do here is to remind themselves of facts. And you actually see to write out things yeah. I know for sure every day. Talk about yeah. how that can help. Yeah. So in order to settle cognitive dissonance, we kind of need to know what we need to know. Cognitive dissonance psychologically is like being up on a fence and you can't decide which side is correct and um, um, which side you need to be on. So in order to kind of settle yourself and keep yourself off the fence, waking up every day and kind of reminding yourself what you know for sure. This is what I believe. This is who I am. This is how I know. This is what I know is right for me to do each day can kind of keep us off the fence. In addition, um, a lot of cognitive dissonance, especially when it's coming from someone who is psychologically manipulative, is based in lies and, and untruths. Mm. So staying in the facts um, is, is kind of another way to stay off the fence. You've got to put those facts right there in front of you every day in order to, um, to decrease that cognitive dissonance. You know, you've been in practice for over 10 years, and I'm wondering what are some of the ways that trauma manifests itself, some of the things that we should maybe be aware of possibly in ourselves? Yeah, so what I'm sure most activists and listeners probably notice is one of the ways we see it as we tend to want to avoid. We tend to want to stay away from things that are upsetting or disturbing to us. Um, we hear that a lot now when people say, I can't take another day of the news. I don't right. want to see one more thing. As activists, we, um, we need to kind of step away from that at some point. But at the same time, um, it's important to kind of stay abreast of what's going on. So having that avoidance feeling, having that emotional pain when you're exposed to this information is the way it kind of manifests itself. We also see it show up in um, kind of how you feel when you're um, triggered by events, when we have a new news story or, or something happen in the news that reminds us of something um, that kind of can trigger us and make us um, kind of a set us off a little balance from ourselves. You, people also may have just some depression and some general anxiety feelings um, that they yeah. maybe even never experienced before 
or a reoccurrence of that. If someone has suffered depression or anxiety in the past and going through this can certainly bring that forward. And a lot of activists suffer from, you know, not wanting to participate at times. Like I can't, I can't go to another march. I can't go to another rally. I can't pick up the phone and make another phone call. Just kind of not wanting to do the things that you know you want to do. Um, and then the other thing is the complete sense of anger and horror that we feel, um, intense anger and horror. So those kinds of feelings is kind of how it manifests itself. We have questions that relate to a lot of what you just said from listeners, but I will just ask you because you brought up the news and in particular social media and how that can be triggering we as activists need to know, and actually I'll just speak from personal experience, I need to know what's going on in the news in order to do the work that I do here with the podcast, but I'm wondering how you recommend striking a balance. How much How much is too much? Yeah, so I think the best way to determine how much is too much is to know your body and know your body's reaction to what you're exposing yourself to. Um, with trauma survivors, when they have to expose themselves to something they know might be triggering, I ask them that before they um, engage with that, whatever it is, whether in our case it's TV or whatever it is, that they take a few minutes to center themselves, quiet your mind, take a couple breaths and be as present as you can. And then spend some time doing the activity or the event and paying attention to how you respond and react to it. I also recommend small doses, so 15, 20, 30 minutes, um, and see how you're feeling. And if you need a break, take a break, stop, take a couple breaths and get present again and re-engage. So small doses and staying present along the way can really help. I know for myself, I, there was a time where the only thing I could expose myself to was one hour Rachel Maddow every day mm. for a month or, you know what I mean? I just, I had yeah. to avoid everything else. I just, I just chose one show that I trusted, watched it, got through it and moved on. And, um, so making some decisions about how long you're exposed to something and how you're feeling as you enter into that exposure can be really, really helpful. Yes. Rachel Maddow is a very reassuring presence. Um, <laughs> she, is. she is. And, uh, <laughs> I have noticed that I have had to really scale back my exposure to Twitter. Twitter is yeah. really, uh, not the, uh, it's, it's not the best showing of humanity happening uh, no. on that feed there. Uh, so let's get into some listener questions. So the first is about somebody who doesn't feel entitled to their trauma. So yeah. we see trauma inflicted on people. Uh, we see children ripped from their families and put in cages. Uh, we see families being torn apart by ICE. Uh, we see people being targeted and killed by white supremacists. And, and some people may feel that because the trauma isn't happening to, directly to them, and it's not on the same scale, that they're not entitled to their feelings of trauma. I, I think there's also some grappling with white privilege here. How would yeah. you address that? Yeah. So first of all, it's a really great question and something really, really important to address. Um, everybody's feelings are valid, even even the, in, you know, feeling not entitled. But I, I think the first thing to kind of address there is that it's OK to it, it probably comes from a very high sense of empathy. And I would venture to say a lot of activists have a high degree of empathy. You know, I so was going to ask you about that. Do you find that to be an inherent paradox? Because many of us get into activism because we care and we're empathetic. But, you know, being empathetic yeah. makes us particularly susceptible to the horrors that we see going on. Right. Yes, all of what you said is exactly true. I have zero research on how high empathy is among activists, but I will say I personally see activists that are impacted more than others, and we do know that empathy is on a scale. So if, you know, there are people that suffer emotionally 
more than others because they have higher empathy. So kind of being aware, again, of your degree of empathy is is an important thing for you to manage. And, and as a result, it means you may have to pull back from your exposure or your activism if you're not able to manage yourself in that space. So circling back around to the kind of white privilege aspect of this, I do think it's important to acknowledge that those of us um, who are white are, I don't want to say most, but a lot of us are newer to this fight. You know, we put on those pink hats a couple of years ago and now we're in, we're in, we're all in when really uh, people of color, the black community, they've been suffering um, with these kinds of horrors, um, the Latina community for horrors for hundreds of years. And so we need to absolutely acknowledge um, that issue. And, it, you know, one of my little soapbox things is we need to fall behind in the sense of uh, allowing the black community, Latina community, the Asian community to kind of lead a little bit on some of this stuff. Um, and I think that's one of the ways we can check ourselves, manage ourselves and make sure we're making the right choices for the for humanity on the whole. You know, at the Indivisible Conference, they talked about inclusive democracy as the goal. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, our focus needs to be that, that we need to to move forward in that direction. So turning your sense of uh, the bad feeling you may have about being entitled to your trauma to a focus on humanity and what do we need to do to push um, humanity forward in a way we've never been able to do before, I think is really important. If we, if we don't pay attention to the children in cages and we don't get, you know, um, a sense of traumatic response to that kind of stuff, then we're not feeling the right, I don't want to say feeling the right feelings, but we're not doing the right thing anyway. So Mm. it's okay to feel bad and feel traumatized about those things. But we need to remember that we're a little later to the to the fight and um, we need to follow um, the, you know, leaders of color. Absolutely agreed. And sort of related to that, Alex Baxter Johnson asks if shared communal trauma is I guess, a mitigating factor. In other words, is it easier if we sort of share the burden of our trauma collectively? Absolutely. So I kind of put that in the category of validation, which is a huge component for um, recovery from psychological abuse. We need to be validated by others. Our process of settling our own mind comes from when we reflect our thoughts off to other people and they reflect back to us. So that process of validation comes from that community that we share. So it is absolutely crucial that we kind of go through this together collectively. I um, spoke with an um, a reporter the other day from Bustle was writing an article about the funeral that was held in Greenland for an iceberg and wanted to know what funerals do for, for climate change, you know, and mm. uh, in, in that context. And our rituals are really important for us as communities to kind of have some understanding and some empathy um, for each other. So being a collective as we go through this horrible time is really important for our well-being. Yeah, it's there is a real power, I think, in in sharing the grief. Uh, I yeah, I certainly can relate to that. I mean, every time I go to you know a protest, um, you you sort of feel your feelings validated, and you yeah. feel sort of lifted up by the the experience. Um, you 
touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, Mandy Bryant-Mason asks, what do you advise around friendships and relationships that have strained during this time? And you talked about this when I saw you speak in D.C., and you said something that I have never heard a therapist say about this. So what's your advice here? (laughs) Well, I kind of have a real strong feeling about this. It comes from my work in, in intimate partner violence and psychological abuse that I feel very strongly that it is absolutely important to end relationships or change your exposure to relationships when you are being harmed in a relationship. And unfortunately, what's been uncovered, or fortunately or unfortunately, however you feel about it, what's been uncovered is that people close to us um, don't have our same morals and values. And I think it's really important to, especially during this time, to stand with and next to people that share our morals and values. We have to stand together during this really, really terrible time. I, I think, you know, it's hard to make those decisions about who to interact with and who not to interact with. But we have to protect ourselves. That's if we don't take care of ourselves and protect ourselves, um, we're not going to make it through. The other little tweak to this, this is is a little bit of a pet peeve for me as well, is the label of mother and father and sister and brother and best friend comes second to someone else's humanity. And society has really lifted up these labels of what mom and dad and sister and brother mean and forced us to use that to override someone's humanity or lack of humanity. And that has put all of us in very dangerous situations throughout our lives and certainly is perpetuated during this time of psychological manipulation. So I feel very strongly um, in, in people using what I call healthy avoidance um, to manage relationships. It is absolutely okay to unfriend people on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfollow, unfriend, block, do whatever you got to do. It is absolutely the right thing to do. I always say too, you know, we need all activists to be in their best and right mind. And if that means you have to change the nature of a relationship with a loved one, then that's what I would like for you to do because we need you to be in this fight. Absolutely. I, I love that. I love everything yeah. you just said. Um, so um, you were talking about resistors fatigue. Paula Harper Christensen uh, wanted to hear you address that. And I've also heard from people talking about it taking a physical toll, everything from exhaustion yeah. to weight loss to hair loss. Um, yep. What do you recommend for self-care? Yeah, so it it is real. People are having real stress reactions to this time. And all of those things, even the physical stuff you mentioned, is all part of what someone experiences when they're going through a traumatic situation or certainly after. I recommend that people take the time they need. Step away, step aside, step down. Let your um, fellow invisible members or fellow resistors step up and hold space for you. And, um, and do the work while you take a step back. I lost my mother shortly after the inauguration unexpectedly. I, you know, I had all these new, yeah, all these new, thank you, all these new resistance friends and people that I barely knew and some I had only known on Facebook and I had to step aside from a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And when I was ready to come back, they were right there waiting for me. So I think it's really, really important that people take the time they need to take care of themselves. Again, I say that as a therapist and as as an activist, that if we don't take care of ourselves, you won't be here for the fight. So um, step aside. Yeah. Well, and so you're touching on this already, but uh, somebody also wanted to know about how if 
depression or burnout has caused you to stop doing the activist work, how do you recommend getting back on the horse? Yeah, so once you, I think with depression, certainly, sometimes you have to dip your toe in the pond and see how things feel before you really know if you're ready. And again, paying attention to your body and how your thinking is, you, you know, you dip your toe back in, you do something light and easy and, and step back and see how you feel. And then you go back in for more and step back and see how you feel. Kind of easing yourself back in, I think, is a really, really good plan for that. We have a long road ahead of us. Um, November of 2020 is, um, is a long way away. It's going to go fast, mm-hmm. but it's a long way away. So if you have to take several of those months to get yourself ready and geared up, then do that. Some people may be more energized now and then have to take the month or two off before the election. You just have to do what you can do a little bit at a time. And pacing, you know, I've also talked to other activists about kind of balancing our lives you know, that this can't be your activism can't be the only thing you do, you know, making sure that your schedule weekly, monthly is balanced between any family or relationship issues that you need to take care of, of course, our work lives and our other social lives and, and this work as activists, kind of making sure things are balanced and balance is hard for people separate from this time right. in, in American life. But certainly um, kind of checking the balance of your life is probably going to be important. You know, I will just ask you one last question, and we're not going to get to all of them uh, in this segment, um, but because uh, there were a ton, like I say. But um, <laughs> I do want to ask you about uh, somebody mentioned humor, and yeah. Victor Frankel, who wrote about surviving the Holocaust, talked about the importance to him of humor in dealing with his trauma. How do you see the role of humor? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about humor, from a neurological standpoint, is when we are laughing, we are present. Um, laughter and humor can exist unless you are fully present in that moment. So from a neurological standpoint, laughing is crucial to our well-being during a traumatic situation and certainly after traumatic situations. So I'm a huge fan of it. Um, we have to make jokes about it. I think we have to be really, really sensitive to the impact of the humor that we choose to participate in and not just our intention Um, so it's kind of important to be mindful of how, um, your humor might be received by another person. Um, but nonetheless, um, for our well-being, we must laugh. It's one of the things I love about the indivisible organization and the kind of crazy, funny things that we're empowered to do in this movement, in this, in this part of the movement is just get out there and, and do the things that make us feel good and make us laugh and where we can have a good time together in and amongst all of this, um, horror. I, I feel it's really important. When we are laughing, we are present. I'm going to put that on a bumper yeah. sticker. I love that. Yeah, That's absolutely. awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. so listen, Jennifer, as I said, we didn't get to everything. So I would love to have you back. Great. I'm happy to do it. Jennifer Young is a counselor specializing in trauma and PTSD, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. As part of our ongoing coverage of the immigration crisis in America, we are going to take a look now at central and eastern Washington. My guest, Abigail Scholar, is the founder and executive director of Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors, a nonprofit that advocates for pro-immigrant policy change in immigration laws. They also offer legal services to immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, and they provide accompaniment services. Abigail Scholar, it's so good to talk to you. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. I'm excited. Good. Well, I'm excited to talk with you. So your organization is based in Ellensburg, but you cover all areas around eastern and southern Washington. You yourself, I believe, are based in Walla Walla. So talk a little bit about some of the challenges and threats to immigrants specific to those areas. I would say that the primary challenges that our immigrant communities face in central and eastern Washington have been really long-standing problems that involve there being a real desert out here in terms of legal services, low bono and pro bono legal services available to them. And, you know, a lot of what they face is a systemic problem that comes out of rural and small town misunderstandings of what immigrant communities mean and migrant communities. Explain what you mean by that. So I think that there's really a misunderstanding about how much migrants and immigrants put into our economy in central and eastern Washington. You know, a lot of our areas are agricultural. And so the employees, the labor that people rely on tend to be primarily migrant labor. And It's interesting that when people hit the ballot boxes, they seem to forget that the people that are helping them with their land, with their produce, are the same people that they're basically voting against. But there's also a lot of problems in terms of the relationship between local law enforcement and our communities. So people live in hiding here or have done for as far back as I can remember and as far back as I'm told other people can remember, you know, there are often sightings of ICE or CBP and communities will go into lockdown. They'll hide, they'll stay at home, they won't send their children to school because they're afraid of what might happen. Because for those communities, any interaction with law enforcement and the criminal justice system can often lead to potential detentions or deportations for varied status community members. And I know that Keep Washington Working, uh, the legislation that passed earlier this year, was meant to shield immigrants from that kind of harassment, specifically in coordination with state and local law enforcement, coordinating with ICE and CPB. Is it being enforced in eastern and southern Washington? Is it sporadic in its enforcement? I would argue that it's sporadic. And the problem is sort of twofold. One is that A lot of law enforcement are still waiting for the model protocol that needs to come out of the state attorney general's office, um, which they can then implement or decide not to implement and then propose their own policy uh, to be approved by the state AG's office. So there's that loophole, which sort of expands the, the time frame. And then you also have a lot of local law enforcement saying publicly that they're not going to uphold Keep Washington Working. So in terms of enforcement, we face as advocates and as grassroots organizers or nonprofit organizers, we're really faced with the challenge of being responsible for holding local law enforcement accountable. And so enforcement at this point is 
you know, it's, it's a little up in the air. So when we see infractions, when we hear about people's rights being violated by certain locations, certain sheriffs or deputies, it really falls on our shoulders to call these offices, hold them accountable, remind them what the law is. And that's sort of part of the process, at least for now. Well, can you give the- an example of a time that you have done that and what the response has been? I would say about three to four weeks ago, there was a community member who, you know, they had an interaction with a client or customer of their business. So they, this community member was actually a victim of a crime. The sheriff came with the perpetrator. They resolved the issue. And then a week later, Uh, Another deputy came back to this person's business that they own, and they started questioning this person about their immigration status and asking for identification. Mm. So under Keep Washington Working, they're not allowed to do that. So not only had they violated it right then and there, but they also had brought plain clothes ICE officials with them. So the minute this person showed identification that wasn't from the United States, ICE then stepped in and detained him. He was then transported in the deputy's vehicle across the street to the substation and then handed over to ICE. And he was then sent over to another county that has, um, well, they have a thing called an intergovernmental service agreement, which means they will hold community members for ICE. This is basically the opposite of a sanctuary city agreement, right? This actually, it uh, implies that there is uh, cooperation between ICPB and local law enforcement. Yeah. And one of the challenges is that, you know, we have witness testimony. We actually, we've gotten multiple sworn affidavits, even from criminal attorneys who've witnessed this kind of stuff. But basically what we had to do in this particular case was we had to start calling the sheriff's office of the county where he was detained to really call them out and hold them to account and say, listen, you need to look into this. You need to find out what deputy did this. You need to do your homework because if you keep doing this, this person is setting you up, setting the county up for a potential lawsuit down the line. And nobody wants that. And so what was the outcome? Well, the outcome sadly wasn't great because as soon as this person was transported to the second county they were taken to, which um, I kind of feel odd about naming the counties because I want to make sure we retain the relationships to keep working on this stuff. But once they were in that other county, that county had an IGSA, the Intergovernmental Service Agreement in place, which means that they weren't able to help us get him bonded out because he was only being held for ICE. They did not have any pending charges against him. So there was there was no wiggle room. And You know, one of the things that we've found that's been extremely effective in past is if a community member is detained, if they're sent to Yakima, let's say, we've had actually great success at getting them released on admin bonds. And basically admin bonds are smaller bonds that ICE officers 
are actually able to grant. You don't even need to go in front of a judge. So we kind of have a sneaking suspicion, no full body of data and evidence yet, but we have a sneaking suspicion that perhaps ICE was catching on to the fact that we were able to bond people out and are now trying to get people to places that have IGSAs in place so we can't offer assistance. Well, so all of this is getting to the sort of advocacy and legal work that Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors does. And I want to unpack a lot of that. Uh, first, though, I want to mention the trainings for immigrants that you give advising them of their rights. What are you teaching people there? So what we do is we go into communities whether that be community space, whether that be, you know, a rec room at a church, sometimes in a school after hours. And what we're just talking about is letting people know what their constitutional rights are and how to interact with law enforcement so that they and their families are ready for any circumstance, really. So, For the most part, in those Know Your Rights trainings, we're preparing people for potential detentions and deportations, which are really hard to do because you have to have these really intimate and painful conversations with community members about, okay, let's say you're deported, who's going to take care of your kids, right? So they're these very challenging conversations, but I think the more information you provide people, the better they are at helping themselves and helping their community, right? Nobody wants to walk in and pretend to be a savior of some sort. We're we're in this fight together. So we're trying to arm people with information. And we're very clear when we do these presentations that it is not legal advice. Um, we are not attorneys presenting the information, but all the information we're providing has been vetted. So we're not just making things up as we go. It's all been checked out by attorneys, but we're very clear that we are not attorneys. And so when people come up to us afterwards with specific legal questions, we're really clear to point them in the direction of immigration attorneys because every case is different. Uh, But I will just add that Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors does offer some legal services, correct? So yeah, we have a staff immigration attorney and he offers a full spectrum of immigration legal services. So that can include naturalization, adjustment of status, assistance with DACA renewals. There's a whole host of legal avenues that he supports community members in. And sometimes, you know, that can mean that he sits down, has a consult, and we realize there's no legal recourse. So in those cases, you give someone a Know Your Rights presentation and they know at least what to do if they end up in a in a bad situation. And I think it's really important to mention that we offer our services pro bono and low bono. And when I say low bono, it's literally $35 if oh, wow, someone great. is able to pay it. And that's for a full case. So, you know, an entire asylum case, if you can afford to pay $35, then you just pay $35. If you can't afford that, then the entirety of the case is free. Well, that's extraordinary. And you also offer what's called accompaniment services, which are done uh, exclusively by volunteers. Tell us what accompaniment services entail. Of course. So the accompaniment services, we work in collaboration with a lot of other organizations because 
accompaniment happens all over central and eastern Washington. So if somebody needs to, let's say, go to court in Moses Lake because they want to file for an order of protection, what we do is we organize a small group of community members who have status to go with that person. When you say have status, what do you mean? So we want to ensure that other people aren't at risk, right? So if the community member does not yet have legal status in the United States, we don't want them bringing their family to Understood. court with them. Because we, Got it. Because, yeah, we just don't, we don't want to put anyone at risk. So in our ideal situation is to have people accompany that person. They should have status themselves. So if this person is approached by ICE or CVP and detained as they come out of the courthouse, those people doing the accompaniment can film the interaction, ask ICE or CVP if they have a judicial warrant, which is what is needed in order to arrest or detain someone. Um, but these accompaniment services are really to give people a breath to allow community members to try to go about the business they need to do and to engage with our justice system with a little less fear. Yeah. You know, we can't guarantee that we can prevent something because we obviously are not going to interfere with the work of a federal agent. But what we can do is we can lift these people up, surround them with love, with support, and let them know that if the worst case scenario happens, we will activate their network, which could mean calling their attorney or calling their families or reaching out to other organizations who can start the process of trying to get that person released from wherever they're being taken to. Well, it's tremendous. And I have uh, alluded to this already. Uh, but your organization is almost entirely volunteer driven. Uh, besides accompaniment services, are there other roles that you need filled? We could always use more interpreters. Um, that's one thing that, you know, it's really hard to find people who have time to give in that way. So especially in smaller communities, right? We're looking at Ellensburg and Walla Walla. These are tiny towns. Walla Walla has a population of 30,000, I think, maybe a little more than that. Ellensburg is much smaller. So our greatest need is either volunteer attorneys who are bilingual, who speak Spanish fluently, or volunteers who are fluent in Spanish who can do interpretation to assist our attorney. Great. And I know that you have a need for funding. So where can people go not only to learn more about your organization, but also to donate? Well, thank you for asking, because <laughs> it's true. We do always need more funding. Um, so people can go to our website, which is www.cwjfon.org. And there's a donate button on the, I believe it's the upper left-hand corner or they can go to our Facebook page and donate there as well. Great. Abigail Scholar is the founder and executive director of Central Washington Justice for Our Neighbors. Abigail, thank you for joining us, and especially thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. And you can also subscribe to the show there too. If you would like to get in touch, I would love it. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Angel Padilla, Mary Small, Jennifer Young, and Abigail Scholar. Special thanks to Kat Pipkin and Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.